Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here today. It's good to see you all. Before we get started here, I thought I'd just ask us a question. Um, Feel free to raise your hand or not. Um, (laughs) How many people here, how many of you, like being told what to do? I don't see many hands up. Okay, well, I'm with you. Um, I'll admit it too. I despise being told what to do. Okay, I don't like it. Um, Maybe that's because I was in the army. Just reminds me of that. Maybe it's because it's it's probably deeper than that, though, right? I don't like it when people tell me what to do because it's not what I want to do. You tell me uh, how to do it your way, I'm going to want to do it my way. Um, simply not what I want, right? And I think probably in our heart of hearts, most of us are motivated by ourselves that way. That's our nature. We're human. And uh, we're selfish. The culture says, think about it, the culture says, go ahead, do that. Do whatever you want. Be you, right? Do whatever's right for you. But as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, at least visibly, it's fine. Um, but definitely, whoa, definitely don't let anyone else tell you what to do, right? Because that would infringe on your liberty. We can't have that. So just do it your way. That's relativism, right? Well, how's that working out for people? Is it going good, you think? I mean, are they all, the people around us, is everyone just happy and content all the time? Are we all peaceful and loving? Usually not. And how about yourselves? Does it always work out when you just do whatever you desire? Does it, does it bring you a greater success? Are we more satisfied because of it? You know, and... Does it help our relationships if we hold that grudge down deep for a real long time? Does it really help that? How about our productivity? Does it help if people are high or or hungover? Is that helpful? And what about ourselves? What about how we feel? Does it really help if people go from one relationship to another, to another, to another? Does it really make them feel better about themselves? Does it help their self-esteem? The answer is no. But my point is, is that Doing things aren't necessarily harmless. If we do whatever we desire, sometimes there's consequences. And if we do whatever we want all the time, we're probably bound up to wind up in some failure or some heartbreak somewhere along the line. We're going to have some trouble. And think about this. If, think about the greater culture, right? If we look around on the news and society, we see people generally doing whatever they want. And what else do we see? 
violence, conflict, corruption, right? This constant dispute over what's socially normative and, and what's not. It's chaos, really. It's like moral and ideological anarchy. It's crazy. And on the other side of it, if you've got chaos and anarchy over here, right, the other side of it, people are trapped because with more chaos, you need to regulate that. And so you've got to control it. And so then you've got strong central governments, and they tell us more and more what to do or what we cannot do. And, and the people that are involved in that, right, they're not just controlled by government. They're really dominated by themselves. They've got their own vices, their addictions, their failures. And so they're enslaved to all of it, and they're enslaved to the self then. And look, I know, um, my wife gave me a hard time about this. I know this seems really heavy, um, but I think it's useful for us to think about and frame it in these terms because it's, that's the opposite of what it should be like, right? It's the opposite of what God wants for us. He wants us to live and be free and to love and have security. He gave us free will, and we ought to exercise that. But we should do it by being obedient to him. That's how we should exercise our free will. It's obedience. And I know, obedience sounds like drudgery sometimes. It sounds onerous. But that's why I'm talking about this stuff. Because I, I just walk through the outcomes of obeying ourselves or obeying somebody else. And it's not good. So in that sense, if we follow God's program for our lives, it helps all those situations, all the chaos. Scripture is replete with ethical instructions about what to do, what not to do. So being obedient to God, honoring him in the things that we do and say, it's going to help us to avoid some of that pain and chaos in our lives. And I, I think that... Uh, if we think about it in those terms, then it's not drudgery. It's not loss of self. It's not loss of liberty. It's freedom. It's perfect then. And all the madness that's around us in our culture, it's not new. We can look to scripture for that. That's why I'm going to take us into the book of Judges 3,000 years ago. They had the same personal and social and political chaos that we have today. And, and I think... The last verse of the book probably summarizes it the best. This is what it says. It says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound familiar? But what we also see in Judges is God working on behalf of his people, and we see how doing things God's way is way better. And Judges chapter 1 is going to give us some reasons about why and how that is. And so I, I want to take his sort of on a deep dive into the Old Testament in the book of Judges. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. But Judges is considered one of the historical books in Scripture. And what that means is it's got historically accurate information or data for us. And we can see God working through history. We can see his character and part of his redemptive plan. And it also instructs us about what to do and, and what not to do. And Judges is sort of a narrative sequel to Joshua. Um, it records the Hebrew people moving into the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, in Palestine. 
and records a period that's about um, 1350 B.C. to 1030 B.C. And that period of time is significant because I want you to think it's between the leadership, the people's leadership of Moses and Joshua and the kings. All right, so this period of judges, they were in a theocracy. And what that means is that their king was God. He ruled from heaven. All right, and that rule was physically mediated between priests and then the people that he commissioned to be judges. And that's significant because that means that they didn't have this strong, domineering central government. They had to self-regulate. They had to follow God's law. They had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. God expected them to follow that, adhere to it, and they would do well. And we're going to see, ultimately, that wasn't possible for them. They fail miserably. Right? So they're humans. Um, and we don't know for sure who wrote Judges. Just a little background information. Um, Jewish tradition has it that Samuel wrote it in the Talmud. And I think that's probably right. He would have had the training. He would have had the information. Um, but what we can be sure of in Judges is its accuracy. So a couple things will show us that. If you, look at, if you just look at the whole book, if you look at internal evidence in the book, um, you can see that it was written shortly probably after the coronation of King Saul, but then sometime before King David finally captured Jerusalem. And that's important because it means that whoever wrote Judges wrote it shortly after the actual events occurred. So it's sort of similar to the Gospels that we have in the New Testament. So we can be sure of the accuracy because of that. And then the other thing that helps us to ensure accuracy is just geographical data points that are throughout it. It's highly detailed narrative. And I'm going to try to show you guys that as we go along the way here. But why don't we, uh, why don't we jump in in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? to fight against them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have handed the land over to him. Then Judah said to his brother Simeon, go up with me into the territory allotted me and let's fight the Canaanites. And I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up and the Lord handed over to them the Canaanites and the Perizzites and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against them, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adoni Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. The name of Hebron was previously Kiriath Arba, and they struck Sheshai, Ahiman, and Telmai. So what we see here is the military political situation of the tribes of immediately Judah and Simeon. And what's happening is that, think the Israelites had been under Joshua's leadership and they had entered Canaan and gone on essentially a seven-year military campaign to establish dominance in the region. And then after that had happened, each one of the tribes had been allotted a special land inheritance that had really well-defined land boundaries. However, there's still pockets of resistance of people within that land. 
And so they're, they're going to go on what's like a prolonged military mop-up operation. And so God's blessed them with an inheritance of the land. But what's interesting is it doesn't mean that they didn't have to go and work hard for it. They still had a job to do. They still had work to do. And one of the first and most important things we see here is that they consulted the Lord in their next move. They had been with Joshua long enough to know they shouldn't do anything big without checking in with God. They wanted to know his will in the matter. and They wanted to be obedient to that. And that gives us her first principle about choosing to do things God's way. It's that obedience honors God's will. We don't know for sure how the people asked God, but it was probably through the Urim and the Thummim stones in the presence of the glory cloud. And that's probably for a different discussion. Um, But the important thing is that they asked. They wanted to honor God's intention in the matter. Why? Why'd they want to do that? It's because Joshua had told them, cling to the Lord. The Lord will continue to fight for them. And they knew that. They knew that God was on their side. And they knew that they needed to continue to consult him. And they had seen, they had seen from previous failure that not seeking God's will had resulted in defeat. And that happened at the first battle of AI. They got beat. So they wanted to obey God in their task. And they needed to do it by seeking his will. They wanted to do it God's way. And so similar for us, I think, you know, if we take on the tasks of life by ourselves, we don't stop to consult God, we can be headed for trouble. Thankfully, unlike the Hebrews, we have the breadth and depth of Scripture, we have prayer, we have the power of the Holy Spirit that can give us instructions and insights as to which course of action to take. So we have it better. And obviously here, when we read through that, Military situation is brutal. Um, we see this Judah-Simeon alliance. They're, they're moving northward, and I, I pegged, um, I pin-dropped. This is Jerusalem here, and this is Hebron. And so this is two of the cities where some of these events are, are taking place. We can see on the map, Judah in the south, Simeon is within it. So they're landlocked inside of Judah. And then up north here is Benjamin, smaller territory. And Jerusalem is, is almost on the border. It's on the south side of the territory of Benjamin. And Bezek was probably close to ancient Jerusalem. And they defeat Adoni Bezek. And that means the Lord of Bezek. He was their king. King Bezek. And, and what they did to the king here in that narrative seems graphic. Um, but just remember, this is simply a historical account of the events that happened. And honestly, if that seems barbaric to us, just realize that's how warfare was conducted 3,000 years ago. Um, They removed his thumbs so he couldn't hold a sword and fight. They removed his toes so he couldn't stand up and run and lead an army. So honestly, it was pragmatic. And and one commentator, I read this last week, I I read about this, said that that kind of treatment wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East. Um, so to give us some perspective, warfare today is just as awful. Um, we just use machine guns and landmines and high explosives. It's just as terrible. So I, I think more than just about the, the conflict itself, I want you guys to understand that this warfare was just. It wasn't, um, it wasn't genocide going into Canaan and uh, clearing out these people groups. It wasn't racism. It wasn't ethnic cleansing. 
God had given his people this clear command to clear out the four nations. And we saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It was a direct command to go in there and clear out the four nations. Because their presence was detrimental to his people. See, God didn't want the evils of the Canaanite society and religion to contaminate his people. Remember, the Hebrews, they were supposed to be a holy people set apart by God to help God bring in his redemptive plan for mankind. Well, how are they going to do that if they're influenced by child sacrifice and prostitution and earth worship? They're probably not going to do it very well. So that was why. The Canaanites, then, they were pagan, they were sinful, and they were opposed to Yahweh. And, and also remember, like these battles, they didn't come without long forewarning. Okay? And the, the people in the land of Canaan, they knew about Yahweh's power. They knew about his existence. They knew about the exodus. They also had general revelation from creation, just like we do. And they could have been saved by faith, just like Rahab. But they weren't. They were stubborn. They stayed opposed to Yahweh, and so they suffered a consequence for that. And, and that's a tough pill for some people to swallow. I, there's one apologist I like who, who commented on it this way. He said, a lot of people want to give God a hard time. Um, you know, if God's good, why doesn't he do something about evil in the world? Well, in Canaan, he did. And then the same people will come back and say, well, that wasn't fair. So it's sort of a catch-22 for them. And, and my point is that God doesn't want to destroy people. He wants to redeem them. He wants a relationship with them. Okay? And it's this is the same God that didn't destroy the Ninevites. I think a, a good example of what I'm talking about is in Jonah. Um, there's 120,000 people there that he saved because they were naive and he wanted their salvation. So the destruction of the Canaanite people that we're talking about here is a result of God's perfect justice, but also a result of their willful disobedience. And it didn't occur until after a long period of patience. But in essence, think, when God asked the Israelites to move into Canaan, it was really a move against sin and idolatry and anything that could get between God and his people. And I think God wants us to do the same thing in our lives. Sin's an action that's in opposition to God's will. Right? And an idol, idolatry in a modern sense, can be defined as anything that we honor or place in a position greater than God. Anything that distracts from our relationship with God, that's idolatry. So when we're doing things God's way, we're getting rid of sin and idolatry in our lives. We see in the text, Judah and Simeon, they strike Jerusalem. Um, they bypass the city, though, and they're going to move southwest, and they're going to continue the fight down at Hebron, which is that, that lower pin. And at Hebron, they take out three warriors, Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai. And that's significant for a couple reasons. Um, first is that those cities are identifiable in modern history and archaeology, and that should give credence to the text. Second is that these three guys were the sons of Anak, it, the Anakim were literally large people. They were giants, and they were well recorded in Scripture, and they had long been a fierce enemy of the people. And, and they, if you remember back, they were responsible for why they didn't go into Canaan the first time. People wound up in the desert for 40 years because they were afraid. And so the fact that 
Judah and Simeon go and they were able to defeat this powerful king and a large army and then go and defeat these sons of Anak, these giants, that's a remarkable thing. It wasn't a simple task. But they did it because they were obedient to God's command. They also, they had to have faith in God in order to accomplish that. They knew, they believed God was with them. They knew how powerful God was. Because of that, they could accomplish that mission. So that gives us our next principle on choosing to obey God. And it's that obedience to God is based on a rational faith. I want you to think about this. The Israelites knew their history, and they had experienced providential military victory. Okay? They knew that they could obey God because God had proven himself to them. They knew that they had success from adhering to his word and acting on it. Essentially, Judah obeyed God because they believed him. We're the exact same. We can have a rational faith in God, and this should prompt us to obey him. We may not have been present for all this, right? But we can read about it. It's true. God hasn't changed. There's nothing about the passage of time that invalidates what we're talking about this morning or what we find in Judges. And now... Like I said before, we've got the benefit of all scripture, we have the benefit of Christ, the assurance of salvation and ultimate victory. And we know that God is good, we know he's trustworthy, and because of that, we can have faith in a God who has proven himself to us, and we can obey him, just like the Hebrews. And there's another reason in here about why we can choose to obey God, and it's that willingness to obey him ultimately leads to victory. And we can see in the text that the people obey. Um, they've been given a difficult task. They're faithfully obedient. And because that they're successful in this task, they have the strength to overcome their enemies. It's all because God's with them, because of God's power, his presence. And I, I want to clarify here, we in America, we're not the covenant people of the Old Testament, Right? We don't have this formulate promise of success like the Hebrews do. However, I think we, could, we can carry forward the principle that if we faithfully obey God, we can be victorious over sin and addictions and idolatry in our lives and the bad outcomes of those things. So living in obedience to God helps us to avoid the consequences of sin. And better, we have Christ. Christ was victorious over sin and its consequence, death. And when we obey and trust Christ, we too are on that winning side, now and eternally. So what I'm going to do is jump ahead a little bit in the text. We're going to go to verse 19. And what we're jumping over is they're really just more examples of obedience and courage and success. And then there's an introduction to the first judge, Othniel, and and we'll get to that in the future. Um, but for right now, I just want to focus our attention on what happens when people start to lose faith and start doing things their own way. This is the contrast. In verse 19, it says, Now the Lord is with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, 
So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So there's a frame shift there in verse 19. First, you see God is with Judah. It's what, it's what it says. And at this point, they've been successful. They started to shift westward toward the coast. And then suddenly Judah's unsuccessful. They couldn't handle this people group that had iron chariots. Well, why is that? Suddenly just lose their nerve or something? I, I don't think it was because iron chariots were invincible. And it wasn't because God wasn't with them. Right? And it wasn't because God wasn't powerful enough. They lost because they had a faith failure. God had given them the tools, they had the right information, but they failed in their task. And I, at some point during the successes, they had started to trust themselves more than God. And that naturally led to a lack of faith during battle. They started doing things their own way, and eventual defeat's inevitable. So their lack of faithful obedience progressed to failure. That's what happened to Judah. However, we can see Caleb, he does well. Right? He's been successful. He's given the city of Hebron. So this, it's interesting in, in Judges. So there's this progression of individuals of great faith who do well. And then it kind of has this down, downhill slider progression of the tribes who then uh, progressively fail. And uh, that's where we see next. The, the narrative goes from the tribe of Judah to Benjamin. And, uh, and I showed you guys that on the map. The southernmost territory included Jerusalem. And we see, essentially, that the Benjamites didn't completely defeat the city that was already burning. Okay, they didn't completely conquer the people that were in it. So they didn't obey God in that. And because they didn't obey God, the people who lived there would be problematic for them for several hundred years until King David came and finally did conquer the city. So they suffered a consequence for that. And in verse 22, it says, Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph had men spy out Bethel. The name of the city previously was Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all of his family go free. Then the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, nor the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in the land. And it came about, when Israel became strong, that they put the Canaanites to forced labor. But they didn't drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Now, the house of Joseph are the half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. And at first they do well. Okay? Here they're, we see them, they're working together, they're encouraging each other, and the Lord is with them. And they managed to take the city, Luz, and they protect a man and his family who had assisted them. And so this is good. And this is actually really similar to the story of Rahab um, at Jericho. So they start well. But then they're on their own, and it starts to go poorly. It starts to go downhill. And what we see is mediocrity then. So it's initial success followed by compromise and failure. See that? Manasseh didn't obey God. 
They didn't continue to drive out the people that represented sin and idolatry. But they did start to do their own version of it. They put him in forced labor. It, think about it. That might have seemed practical. And it was probably a lot easier. And I'm sure they justified it to themselves. But it wasn't what God commanded. They disobeyed God. They left that Canaanite influence in their lives and it ended up causing their downfall. And Ephraim, they did worse. They didn't even conquer the people. They, they lived with them. They were willing to compromise with the culture. And this applies to us. God wants his people to stamp out sinful things and behaviors in their lives. And maybe we want that too. But I think it's tempting to do it our way and just get rid of some of it. But the things we know that aren't right, we can't minimize them. We certainly can't live with them. We're just like the Hebrews. How are we going to serve and honor God if we're mired in disobedience and its outcomes? I think it's simple. We can't. We can't do it well. And it, unfortunately for the Hebrews, we see uh, it gets painfully worse. So in verse 30, it says, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Halab or of Aksib, Helbah, Afik, or of Rehab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemeth. You guys see this pattern here? Or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemeth and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Then, then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living on Mount Herez and Ajalon and Shalbim, and when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. The power of the Amorites, the border of the Amorites, ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. This is a progression, a total disaster for the people. There's this downward movement of compromise and unwillingness to obey God, and it results in a parallel progression right, of failure and then subjugation by their enemies. That's what we see. And I think it gives us another principle about why we should choose to obey God. And it's simply that unwillingness to obey God leads to consequences. The Israelites here, they displayed unwillingness, compromise, and failure to complete a task that they were given. And what happens to them is total reversal of fortune. And it the result of their disobedience here, I think, is probably best viewed, at least in this text, from the perspective of Dan. The Danites are subjugated, right? They're not allowed to come down out of the hill country. They lost their freedom and security. And that downward spiral, then, is happening in a moral, spiritual, and now physical sense. That's not different in our lives. We don't obey God. If we compromise with sin and immorality in our lives, we too... I get to experience some consequences. What's Newton's third law? 
We can summarize it, right? For every action, there's a reaction. So what we do does have consequences, and they can either be good or bad. And look, I'm not saying that all difficulties are a result of sin. I'm not saying that. But logically, some will be. And moreover, think about this. If we extrapolate this out to a larger scale, where disobedience and rejection of God are the norm, that we're going to start to see chaos and conflict and control. And that is exactly what we see in our world today. So, in summary, I really just want us to understand that we can choose to obey God in our personal lives. Judges demonstrates that faithful obedience is necessary and it's a rational thing to do. We need to seek God's will. We also need to realize there's going to be consequences for actions, good or bad, depending upon whether we choose to follow God or not. Look, folks, I think God wants our undivided attention. And he loves us. He doesn't want compromise with ourself or with the culture. He doesn't want us to suffer consequences and failure. He does want us to freely live our lives and honor him with what we say and do. I think following biblical principles and God's program for our lives then is the best option. Because we know God loves us, we can know that obeying his directives is always going to be right and best. It's protective. It's the only thing that gives us the freedom. Think about it, the joy, the satisfaction, the purpose that we're looking for. It's not restrictive. It's liberating. It's perfect. And because he loves us, then I think it's only right that we show our love back, right? By doing what he asks us to do. So that gives us her final principle about obedience. And it's that obedience shows love to the one who loved us first. It, just like the ancient Hebrews, we know this isn't easy by ourselves. In Judges, we see human failure. We see humanity. But thankfully, we have it much easier today. We can carry these principles forward through the lens of the New Testament. We can see the whole picture of how desperately we as mankind need God, how we can't do well enough on our own, how we are insufficient. But then there's really good news. God sent us a Savior, Redeemer, because you can see we all need help. It's a beautiful thing. He's Christ. He's God. He's also the ultimate man. Think about this. He came and obediently died for us to be set free now and in eternity from the consequences of our own disobedience. Our belief in Jesus is just as grounded and rational as anything else I've talked about today. And simply believing in him is all that's required to have this salvation. And if we haven't done that yet, if you haven't acknowledged him with simple belief yet, I'd encourage you to do that today. There isn't anything else to wait for. Christ is our judge. He's also our deliverer. And also, just like the Hebrews, believers, we have an inheritance too. It's not the land of Canaan. Our inheritance is eternal. The rewards there are real. That's our hope. 
based on our faith in Christ, we have real hope for better things to come. But he also gives us a job to do now. And that's to spread this message of hope, this message of certainty, now and forever, by using our gifts and talents. So I'm going to encourage you to be obedient to the task God has given you today. Even if they're difficult. We can be faithful and we can obey God because we know that he's faithful in return. So ultimately it's kind of like this. All right? I don't think obedience, this isn't a carrot and a stick routine. Don't think about it that way. We don't do what God says just because of fear of judgment or because of promise of reward. It's not like that. Think about a child who obeys a parent. Okay? When they're young and immature, that kid does what it's told because it understands this consequence and reward paradigm. Okay? But when they get older and they mature, you don't want them to continue to do that. You don't want them to do what they're told just because. Right? You want them to do what you tell them to do because you want them to love and honor you back. You want them to finally understand your wisdom, your love, your provision that is protective for them. You want them to do the things that you tell them to do because they love you. And so that's the ideal. Our family is a good, a good model for this. If we choose to do the things that God wants us to do because of who God is and what he's done for us. So obedience, then, it's simply an act of love and honor for the one who loved us first. And I think if we love God, if we really believe who he says he is, then we ought to do what he says. Amen? Why don't we um, just bow our heads in prayer? Dear God, thank you so much for an opportunity to come here this morning and gather as believers to open up your word and to study it and see what it has to say. Thank you that we can freely worship you and freely talk about it. I thank you for judges, for the treasure trove of information that's in there, um, but also just how relevant and applicable it is to our lives. I pray that you would just help us to think about the things in our lives that we need to set aside, our sinful behaviors. Help us to have victory over those things. Help us to do what you ask us to do. Thank you for your word to us and the instructions that are in it. I'm thankful that your program really is better. It's what's best for us and all mankind. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sending Christ. Thank you that we're not alone. Thank you that we do have the assurance of salvation. And we thank you for the hope that we have now and forever.